Welcome everyone to Bulldog Bites, practical tips for busy GCs. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a partner in Womble Carlisle's business litigation group. With me today is fellow Bulldog, Alan O'Rourke. Alan recently joined Womble Carlisle after six years as an assistant U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C., where he specialized in cybercrime. Alan, thanks for being my guest. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Great. I've asked Alan to join me today to share some tips and insights connected with cyber-related federal investigations. As our audience knows, the area of cybersecurity and cyber fraud are front and foremost. As I go around talking to GCs, everyone's worried about it. They're not sure what to do about it. And I'm privileged that we've got a real expert with us today who's devoted the last six years to dealing with cyber crime. And Alan, maybe if you could start just by telling us a little bit about your experience at the U.S. Attorney's Office and the kind of things you were working on there. Uh, sure. So every U.S. Attorney's office is supposed to have at least one chip, C-H-I-P, and that, that means a computer hacking and intellectual property prosecutor. And your job is to handle cases that fall within that category of computer hacking and also to advise and train the folks around you at the office on evidence related to the internet and electronic evidence. So, uh, so that's what I did. And in D.C., the nature of our venue statute for the District of Columbia was such that we had a lot of cases where the actor was overseas, and that's how we had our venue. So I specialized in China, did a lot of China-based attack groups that were stealing trade secrets or conducting economic espionage, and I would handle a criminal investigation uh, related to that. But there's all sorts of other types of crime uh, that you would deal with, everything from internet fraud to sort of dark web marketplaces, uh, even cyber stalking and all sorts of things. It's, it's really... I guess it's sad, but it's a, it's a very multifaceted space and obviously a very growing space. I assume some of the targets of those attacks were companies? Um, yeah, so as, as a prosecutor, my victims were the companies who were uh, being attacked. And so they were, from their perspective, they were experiencing a data breach. Uh, from my perspective, their data breach was the precipitating piece of a computer hacking crime. And either I would be notified from the company or what would happen more often is that we would be conducting an investigation, learn a lot about a particular malware or a particular attack group, and as we learned about the attacker, we would find evidence of who the attacker was targeting uh, and even evidence of successful data breaches uh, from the attacker's own sort of infrastructure. And so we would then be reaching out to the companies and saying, you know, hey, I have bad news. You're having an incident, and you know, here's what we know about it and how it can help. Um. Given that experience, what would you say were some of the most important things you learned, particularly that might be of application to some of our listeners who are GCs out there worried that they are currently under attack or, you know, without their knowledge or, or are worried about future attacks? Um, sure. I think that for me, one of the biggest things was just especially having been on running these investigations that are confidential and also involved in national security investigations with a clearance. Uh, I had the opportunity to get a, a clearer picture of just how much is out there. And it's just uh, cyber attacks and data breaches are just vastly, vastly more common than than it seems when you read the news. And the ones that you hear about in the news are very much the exception, but they're just vastly more common. And, and so a lot of times, I think that certainly the attitude I had before I got into this and the attitude I observe in others is one where a company is saying, I want to avoid being that company in the news, and I want to avoid having an attack. 
And I guess my, my new perspective on life is that everybody who has anything you know, reasonably worth, worth stealing or attacking will be attacked. And if you are a large company or, or have valuable trade secrets, there is very likely somebody with at least some small foothold in your network right now. That is just sort of the new norm. And so instead of being in a place where you say, how can I avoid you know, having someone intrude in my network, uh, we need to move to a world where we say, how can I you know, use technology and organize my network so that anyone who gets in is unable to do very much, unable to move around, unable to steal very much. It's all going to be encrypted. That's sort of the new perspective we're heading that direction, but the fact that so much is confidential and so you don't hear about it is, is almost in many ways uh, slowing down that progression. So that's interesting, I, Alan. I hear you saying that instead of saying we've got to make sure no one gets in, it's almost the assumption that people are going to find a way to get in or get some foothold, and how do we structure ourselves to deal with that that, you know, eventuality, now almost certainty that at some point somebody's going to have a, gain access. That's right. And so, and every company's different. And so, one of the things we talked about as we're preparing is sort of the big categories of data breaches, excuse me, cyber threats that are out there today or that are common today. And I think it's helpful to go over those and a company should have them in mind in thinking about their own threat analysis. So, one is essentially cybercrime for profit, so an actor who is motivated by profit. So that's going to be everything from your internet fraud to your ransomware to your business email compromise scheme. And then another is a category of attacker that is referred to as APTs. An APT is an acronym coined by Mandiant more than a decade ago that means Advanced Persistent Threat. And usually that's an actor who has a lot of money and a lot of sophistication and very often is associated with a, with a foreign power, either condoned by it or even sponsored by it. An advanced persistent threat, if, if you're being targeted by an APT, you know, that's the sort of thing that the DNC you know, had. They're going to get in. And that's the one where you, we just got to change the way we think about that because it's really hard to, to keep those folks out. Um, a third is a... Um, hacking that's designed to sort of send a message and sometimes referred to as hacktivism. So this is your um, your anonymous group, right, that is sort of hacking Israeli websites or or, your, uh, or, or uh, defacing a website of a company that you don't like. So any, any type of hacking that's sort of to try to send a message. And then the uh, fourth is happily nascent at this point, but uh, terrorism, you know, terrorist hacking. And Today, as we speak, the terrorist organizations don't really have the capabilities to do a lot. But the fear is that, you know, over time that will change. And um, that is a group that would be motivated to obviously cause damage. Um, and then finally, the insider threat, you know, the, the Snowden situation or your, your employee uh, that's leaving and takes a laptop with them or loses a laptop. That's the sort of fifth kind of fifth broad category. And, and even within each of those, right, there are lots of different trends, but in a company with valuable trade secrets or a lot of PII or a company that would be, that is a kind of PII is uh, personal, sorry, yeah, personal information. information, right? Uh, or a company who might be a good attack vector on a different company. They're all going to be sort of targets of an APT. And that's the type of situation where you just got to kind of rethink how you approach network security and, and not think about preventing a breach from happening, but just sort of take as a matter of fact that it's happening 
and have plans in place to deal with it. Now, you think about defense to cyber crime. A lot of companies assume that that's something the IT department's handling or can't I buy a software program that will protect my network? Talk to me a little bit, particularly for in-house counsel who may be generally aware that, oh, maybe something needs to be done. You know, what what resources are available and what are your suggestions to companies that want to stay ahead of this threat? What kind of things should they be thinking about? Who should they be talking to? So one thing is that it's no longer merely the province of the IT department. And that has certainly been the case for some time, but it was driven home most forcefully in the last uh, revelations of the Yahoo data breaches from 2013, 2014. The board of directors did an investigation of of how the company handled the investigation of those data breaches and found it wanting. And the general counsel lost his job and the CEO lost some many million dollars of of, of her bonus. Um, And that is now sort of the concrete example of why it's not just the IT department and that the new guidance is that the board and you know your C-suite uh, executives need to be able to be conversant in the issues and aware of the issues. Uh, the other reason why it's sort of not merely the IT department is that a lot of cybercrime is what we call social engineering, just tricking people. It's not you know like um, some magic program that a super uh, technically sophisticated computer scientist you know runs. There is some of that. But most of it is just tricking people. And so everyone in the organization, and especially the people in power, are kind of subject to that. And it's sort of everybody's issue. Who was it? The, um, how was it? The defense director that uh, was hacked, uh, and they were, it was through uh, the hackers contacted his um, cell phone provider. No, it was, um, it was AOL. And I think it was the. Um, it was a CIA director. That was it. And yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, they just called up AOL and said, uh, I forgot my password. Yeah. And the recording of that call gives you the jitters because they got the security question wrong like several times. And, <laughs> and, and the person on the line just wanted to be helpful and kept sort of helping them out and ultimately let them reset the password. And then the actor got access to the CIA director's account. So that's a person who could have zero experience in computers. It's just a question of, of social engineering that that person uh, at AOL. Interesting. And, and apologies to any AOL listeners. <laughs> no, that's all right. I, I think um, I appreciate you bringing up the Yahoo story because it certainly made big news. But if the listeners, the GCs that are listening to this podcast want to keep their job, I think that's a good lesson that this is not something you can simply ignore. So for the ones that want to stay employed, what kind of things, what did the the Yahoo GC fail to do that you're suggesting that they do, that our listeners should do when either in anticipation of an attack or in terms of actually handling a breach? Um, So I think that that particular issue had to do with the adequacy of of the investigation of the breach. So uh, I can't really get into sort of the, the sort of nuances of Yahoo's own situation, but but they were found to have not done an adequate job investigating what happened in the scope of the damage and also the sort of legal implications of what happened. And it is one reason why you should have a few phone numbers on speed dial as soon as you learn of a data breach or a possible data breach. Uh, And one of those phone numbers should be your lawyer because the handling of a cybersecurity incident is something that is going to be scrutinized later on by a regulator, by a class action lawsuit, or by your own board, 
and you want to make sure that it's being handled in a way that is going to uh, minimize any legal risk down the line, in addition to being, you know, a thorough and comprehensive investigation for the benefit of the customers and the company. So, uh, so that right there is sort of part of it. But um, I think that different companies are in different places for how they're able to handle all this stuff. But I think that the approach is that you want to develop what's called a data breach plan, and you want to develop that with your in, in coordination with your lawyer with your insurer, your cybersecurity insurance, and with your, uh, you want to go ahead and have a relationship with your vendor who's going to help remediate a breach. And you want to go ahead and have a relationship with a relevant law enforcement in your area. And so you have all that in place, and that's a big part of the data breach plan, and there are other parts of it, but uh, that's just part of your preparedness uh, phase. And a lot of companies will uh, they end up like sitting down to do that when they get their sort of uh, insurance uh, premium quote uh, from their cybersecurity insurance company because it's just so uh, vastly expensive until they go back and say, okay, what can we do to bring this down? And, and having that data breach plan in place and some other things like how your network is organized and things like that uh, can help that. And then how you handle the incident itself. Hopefully you have a good plan in place, you follow the plan, and, and part of that plan is to have an attorney making sure that uh, how you're handling it is going to meet the obligations you have from regulators. Uh, it's going to be thorough in terms of you know your own obligation to the company, uh, and it's going to minimize your legal risk down the road. And one implication of that is through the attorney-client privilege. So you have this incident, and your attorney says, "Okay, at my direction, you know we need to hire a remediator company to come in here and do a report." And then if the attorney is working with that remediator company and directing their work, then later on when somebody's trying to get a copy of that report so they could use it in a class action lawsuit, you're able to keep it confidential under the attorney-client privilege. So there's a lot of ways in which trying to sort of get your uh, lawyer involved right from the outset can help save your blushes later on when you're, you're actually having to defend yourself. No, that makes a lot of sense. Obviously, if you're going to get a memo detailing weaknesses right. or yeah. things that you haven't done, much better to get that from your lawyer, you know, as part of a privileged communication to say, hey, here's some things that could be done differently or done wrong, as opposed to simply going to one of the many cyber companies out there that are not law firms and say, what should we do? Because I think they tend to give you a list of, of recommendations and findings of deficiency without much thought to the fact that that you've now created an exhibit for the uh, class action right. lawyer who's right. going to say, ah, oh, you hired a company and they told you these were all the terrible things uh, that you had done and all the all the best practices you had failed to follow. They did it to get the job and now you've created a liability. Uh, and then finally, uh, how you interface with law enforcement. And I guess every situation is going to be unique. Uh, but generally speaking, there's a lot to be gained from reaching out to law enforcement um, First off, to the extent that you and you'll have obligations under uh, data breach notification laws to notify consumers and and others about the incident, virtually all the state laws that require that allow you to toll that and delay notification uh, during the the period of a confidential law enforcement investigation. So you need to get that communication back from law enforcement that uh, they have an investigation that it needs to stay secret. So it does sound selfish, but uh, that is, uh, there are a lot of reasons why you want to reach out to law enforcement. But in terms of your publicity risk and your, your legal risk, there's an obvious one uh, on top of the others. The other thing I find is that there are certain things that the FBI or law enforcement can do, uh, authorities they have with a search warrant that uh, a company cannot do. And so a lot of times we would um, 
be able to get a tip from a company either that had, uh, had an attack uh, directed at them and they, and they caught it or that were actively being victimized. We would investigate that and then we could find out all about the you know, malware and communication channels that the attacker was using. And we find out about it not just from the attack on that company, but from the attack on the other 10 companies in the industry that that attacker is conducting. And then we were able to come back to the victim company and say, okay, you know, in addition to plugging that obvious hole that you know about, you know, here are another eight or nine holes that you should go ahead and plug now because those are the next eight or nine things that the malware will do. And so that's a way in which you get the benefit of the investigative work, uh, the law enforcement to protect yourself. The reality is, as soon as the FBI finds out about an incident, they're going to reach out to you. But to the extent you're able to engage them, uh, you're able to do a lot more. Um, uh, having said that, it's a balancing act. So frequently when I interact with companies as a prosecutor, they would have an attorney who would be uh, managing that, the flow of data, uh, making sure, you know, redacting those remediated reports uh, mm -hmm. of any discussion of the company's network deficiencies or, or cybersecurity deficiencies and so on. One more question. I know you and others at Womble have worked on incident response plans or data breach response plans. Can you tell our listeners a couple of things that you think make for a good plan or things they should be sure to including as they put together those those plans? Sure. And at the outset, this is a lot of times a fruitful way to begin the conversation when we meet with a client is to sit down and just talk about the data breach plan. Um, and we're always happy to do that. Generally speaking, though, you're going to want to be able to kind of have in front of you all the things that you're going to want to know when there's an incident. So where is your data stored? You know, uh, is it all on servers, you know, that you control or, or do you have data stored in the cloud? And then who has access to that data? And then who uh, has the administrative rights to make changes to the levels of access? You know, all of these things you, you're going to want to know and you're going to want to have it at your fingertips when you're dealing with an incident. And then frequently, the data breach plan also forecasts how the company as, um, as an organization is going to handle it. So typically, it will identify the group of folks that need to be notified uh, and brought into the crisis management team, and frequently will identify who will lead that team, and then how that team will report back. And uh, very often, it will also provide for, uh, well, it will have the information for um, your relationships with your remediator company, and if you have a, a relationship with an outside counsel and with you know a law enforcement group, that'll be sort of in there as well. So it's not sort of a one-size-fits-all situation, but a lot of the the horror stories you hear are when you know an incident happens and there is no plan, and you know you as um, as a corporate officer or, or as or as the GC are, are sitting there thinking, you know, okay, who do I need to call to figure out? sort of uh, to map our network and figure out where everything is. Or there is a data breach plan, and then the person in charge of the crisis management doesn't work there anymore because <laughs> uh, it was never been updated. Or maybe the person who was put in charge of it didn't realize that they were in charge of it. Uh, and so it's one of those situations where you want to sit down and plan what you're going to do, and then a lot, of, a lot of companies will also do a dry run. Uh, they'll have a, you know, they'll have a day where they'll pretend to have an incident, and kind of dry run the response to it so that people are kind of ready to go. That is uh, good practice regardless. Regulated companies, heavily regulated companies, you know, may be obligated to do that separate and apart from it just being a good practice. 
You brought up a good point, though. You know, if you do have a plan and it comes finally, you, you didn't follow it, uh, you can open yourself up to some ramifications uh, for that. What would you say to an executive or a board member who would say, you know, we're less liable if we don't have a plan than if we do? What, what would you say to them? Why, why is that wrong-headed? Um, sure. I think that to the extent that... Um, so there are under... You know, HIPAA and, and under the Graham Leach Bliley Act, I mean, there's an affirmative obligation to have cybersecurity uh, measures in place, including this plan of action for handling this type of situation. The, the statutes don't specifically necessarily say, you know, data breach plan, but this would be among the set of basic items uh, that you really ought to have and that a regulator would look askance at you for not having. But even in an unregulated space, to the extent that you don't want to be down the road and accused of negligence, and, and having a cybersecurity breach be worse than it could have been because of your negligence, uh, one way to sort of forewarn against that is by having a plan in place uh, for how you can contain an incident uh, as rapidly and thoroughly as possible uh, rather than discovering a breach and it taking you forever to sort it out and contain it and to have kind of like in the Yahoo situation where we had a 2013 and then there was a 2014, you know, so... Great. Thank you. Um, we do like to leave some time for audience questions, and we do have a couple questions that audience members submitted. Uh, the first one asks, do you foresee changes or shifts in how the Department of Justice will address cybersecurity issues under the Trump administration? Uh, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, uh, there will be will be changes. Uh, I think that in terms of like your uh, your line prosecutors who are prosecuting these offenses, there I, I don't anticipate there would be any changes. But there are a lot of policies and uh, relationships that are in flux, and both relationships between the government and large service providers, um, how the Story Communications Act will be amended, the use of classified uh, evidence gathering techniques. Uh, and then the relationships with foreign partners uh, and all of those things in a new administration, you know, are subject to change. And, and that's not even to mention the different proposed legislation coming out. And in fact, this week, we're supposed to uh, hear by the end of the week, the president's executive order on cybersecurity, uh, which I think is going to focus on measures of cybersecurity measures for the government, but it will have implications for the private sector as well. Gotcha. Uh, the, the second question is, what is the future of cybersecurity? Looking three to five years down the road, how will things evolve? What new types of attacks do you see coming? So I know that's asking you to put on that fortune sure. teller hat, but um, you know I know it's changed rapidly. We we were talking earlier about the fact that the whole cybersecurity field is twenty five years old or so. I mean, it started shortly after the internet was created, which really hasn't been here that long. But as we see the evolution of threats, I'm interested in your thoughts too on what where you see that going. Sure, there there uh, there are a lot of different things. Let's see. Um, so the the ransomware attacks were a big theme of this past year, and in the history of cybercrime is you know, relatively new. And so I think that there's every reason to think that that will continue and that there will be a broader variety of targets. Certainly we heard about hospitals, but it's going to be targets, uh, any company that's going to you know, lose money or put people in danger 
by having their systems locked down for a stretch of time is sort of ripe for that kind of attack. And there's every reason to think that that type of attack will continue. Um, the Internet of Things, or IoT, is creating a new new space. So one way in which cybercrime is carried out is through what's referred to as a botnet or a network of robots, but we call it a botnet. Uh, but essentially a bunch of compromised computers. They're all compromised by the same worm or virus, and, and an actor now controls them, and he can direct attacks through those computers. Uh, last September, uh, the Mirai botnet, as it's called, was uh, used to attack the uh, DynDNS, which is a domain name service that's kind of one of the backbone of the internet type companies. But the devices that were used there were a lot of uh, IoT devices, a lot of cameras, smart cameras that would, you know, you like email your photo back to yourself. Um, and that is kind of a new, that'll be a new wave, right? Because a lot of these, as we connect more stuff to the internet and have more IoT devices that are not secure or they have like an a, IoT's you know, internet a of things, default again, password. For, for our listeners uh, that, that may not be familiar with that, but... Uh, We've talked some about Internet of Things in earlier podcasts, oh, as sorry, well as Ranching sorry, yeah, Maritime. IoT. So, now, that's okay. Uh, I just re- remind our listeners that we had a full podcast on dealing with ransomware attacks. We actually had a client that had been a victim mm-hmm. of a ransomware attack. So if you missed that episode, uh, you may want to listen to that. And we've also talked about sensors and I- IoT. Um, uh, you may remember Ted Claypool had done a podcast talking about uh, the sensors in tra- everything from trash cans to mm-hmm. mattresses to other things that are going on. So listeners may want to do that. But what you're talking about is these are devices that are now being used as form of an attack. So yeah, that's, so that's the botnet. Right. And and so I guess what I'm saying in terms of current and future trends is that we think of a data breach as the theft of information. What we've seen in the last year or two with ransomware is the attack uh, compromises your information and then holds you hostage. An Internet of Things attack right now, you know, being used as a botnet to then attack others. But also just the fact that all these devices are connected to the Internet means that it's not necessarily going to be about theft of information anymore. It could be, you know, you get locked out of your house because, you know, your home security system and locks are connected to the Internet. And then all of a sudden, maybe that's being done to harass you or maybe you're, you know, you're being threatened with extortion. So, um, or your car shuts down and, and you're stuck somewhere and, you know, you got to pay a fee or, or, or maybe you're just being targeted. So the Internet of Things um, sort of creates that further uh, vulnerability. And then in terms of companies... I think that the new direction you hear about is what we call moving laterally, whereby, especially within APT, the Advanced Persistent Threat, starting a particular company, what you're going to see are, uh, if you really want to get into that company, you'll start targeting the, the smaller companies that are doing business with that bigger company, and then infiltrate them and then move laterally through whatever network channel you can into the bigger fish. And what that means is for companies that have contractors, you know, every single one of your contractors is a potential vulnerability. And that is something that has to be considered in the language you put in that contract and in uh, what kind of, uh, the extent to which you give out access to your network or what part of your network you give out access to. Uh, because that's what we saw with the, DNC, with the Democratic National Convention hack, right? Was It wasn't that Hillary Clinton's network was uh, targeted, but it was the networks of organizations that her campaign was working with, correct? Am I, um, yeah, right? I, I, I think that 
I mean, there were Russian APTs in the DNC network for a long, long time. And I don't remember how they necessarily originally got there. And they may have had to reestablish their foothold over time. But right, either coming in through the side door or through the front door, I think we're going to see more and more side door as people start to secure their front door. And then um, I think that, frankly... You know, I, what I hope doesn't happen, but I think it would be sure your worst case is sort of what people are worried about, which is the sort of terrorist use of the Internet. And I think when you talk to law enforcement agents who work on this stuff, in the back of their heads, they're hoping we can get our act together as a society and be able to secure ourselves more and better before one of these terrorist organizations gets the capability to really do something. Great. Scary world, uh, but uh, it's uh, uh, it is. scary stuff coming. So, uh, but I think that's uh, you know that's an alarm bell to our listeners that there is more and scarier stuff coming, and I think uh, all the more reason to get sophisticated technical help, and for the reasons we talked about, do that through a lawyer so you can get it privileged and get somebody knowledgeable. So thank you for sharing that information. Thanks for our listeners for submitting those questions. I want to finish, as we always do, with the less serious side of the show, uh, the guest quiz. Uh, Alan, since your career has been dedicated to protecting people and businesses from cyber threats, I wanted to ask you about a few famous robotic predators. Oh, uh, no. no, robot protectors. I'm sorry, protectors. So, first question: Are you, are you ready? And and this is, I'm ready. I'm uh, as ready as yeah. I'm ever likely to be. Yeah. yeah. So um, we don't have a prize for you. However, we can offer you continued employment if yeah. you get at least two yeah, out just, of three correct. Just keep so. giving me access no. <laughs> to the coffee machine. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's don't right. take coffee. away my key to the coffee uh, room. Yes. Your 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 bonus depends on it, but nothing else uh, of significance. Uh, the first question is. One of the most iconic robots in science fiction, he first appeared in the 1956 movie Forbidden Planet and later appeared in episodes of Lost in Space, Twilight Zone, and oddly enough, Columbo. Can you name this robot? Uh, I don't know. No, I cannot. All right, listeners. uh, Brian, any ideas? (laughs) Since I I put this together, uh, uh, it would be Robbie the Robot. All right. And that's, uh, if you haven't seen Forbidden Planet, you absolutely should. Put that on my list. All right. Not originally built to provide security, this famous robotic duo has saved Luke, Leia, Han, and arguably the universe yeah, several times. Was, uh, so, certainly uh, C-3PO and R2-D2. All right. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. That, that is a required one. At least I didn't drop the ball on that one. All right. That, that's a good one. Knowing my Star Wars uh, fandom, that, that I'm glad you got that one right. Uh, Number three, Optimus Prime, a robot that can assemble himself into an 18-wheeler, is the hero of what 1980s cartoon that has become a blockbuster? Oh, he gets it before it finishes. That's right. Transformers is the correct answer for Yeah, and if you go back and and look at the questions and the the era that they come from, I think that's, uh, yeah, I'm limited by... Yeah, by, uh, yeah, you weren't alive, but that's yeah. you know that's you know that's that's all right. Yeah, you know, we, excuses are for the yeah. for the guys who lose. Right, you know? our demographics uh, <laughs> skew to the older side, so we try to you know come up yeah. with something relevant. All right, we have one more. Maximilian is an ominous red robot protector of Dr. Han Reinhardt, a mad scientist determined to explore one of the lifeless vortexes from which this film is named. Can you name the film that Maximilian's in? And it's a lifeless vortex. If you don't know the film, what would that be? Uh, Space Odyssey? Close, but it is The Black Hole. Uh, I should have guessed. The Black Hole. Yeah. 
All right. Well, you did get two right, so at least your employment is secure, uh, albeit no bonus. <laughs> so, now, thank you, Alan, for participating. Um, uh, I appreciate it. Do you have any upcoming uh, speaking engagements or, or articles that our listeners can look forward to um, either seeing you or, or reading about? Uh, I think May 15th for the um, National Association of Corporate Directors. Uh, I'll be on a panel about cybersecurity at the airport in Greenville, South Carolina. And I just had a, a speaking proposal accepted for the Privacy Security Summit in Washington, D.C. next October. And that'll be about um, active network defense techniques. And my role will be the legal framework for that. So, you know, how to, how to be effective without wiretapping people. Uh, <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. No, that's great. That's an important conference, and those are great engagements. So, well, thank you, everyone, for listening. I do want to remind folks that you can find previous episodes of Bulldog Bites, as well as subscribe to the podcast by either going to wcsr.com backslash podcast or go to iTunes or the Google Play Store or wherever you acquire your other podcasts. If you do have questions or comments on the show, you can share them with us via LinkedIn and Twitter. Thank you for listening. Remember, everyone, particularly in the world of cyber fraud, it is a doggy dog world out there. Chew careful.